From the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association, hello and welcome to Grapevine. This is volume 41, number 21, for week ending Friday the 28th of May 2021. It's all the ones. This week's news includes our local Covid update, changes to the road closures for the new bridge, the council starts to meet again face to face and the new mayor is announced. Plus memories of the grab a granny night singleston. <laughs> Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me this week is Aileen, your newsreader, and we see a welcome return of Andy with some more about Weird Norfolk. However, we must get underway with the first part of the news. Well, hello everyone. This is Aileen. And would you believe I'm sitting here recording in the sunshine? Um, well, how amazing to have some lovely sun after such a wet spell. But I am in the conservatory and I have a puppy on my sofa chewing a bone. There's a lawnmower outside somewhere. Um, so there will be some background noises, but I just thought it's so lovely to have the sunshine. Quite a lot of news this week. The best piece of news, which I'm going to read first, is about the infection rate in the town. Infection rates have dropped to levels not seen since last summer, at the end of the first wave in Great Yarmouth. The town just recorded four cases in the week ending May the 20th, an 80% drop from the previous week when there were 20 cases per 100,000 people, a figure which matches the borough's population. The rate was previously this low all the way back up to the week ending August the 22nd, 272 days ago, or nearly nine months back. It currently has the 34th lowest rate in the country out of 379 authorities compared to the highest rate of 451 in Bolton. All nine districts across Norfolk and Suffolk has seen a drop in COVID rates, apart from mid-Suffolk where it has stayed the same at 18 per 100,000 and where the prevalence of the virus is also the highest. While Yarmouth saw the biggest fall by far, East Suffolk saw the biggest reduction by 50% and the least number of cases across all the local authorities. Overall, the Norfolk figure has dropped by 35%. Carl Smith, leader of the Borough Council, hailed the efforts of townsfolk and marshals in halting the spread of the virus and urged people to continue following the guidance about hand-washing and social distancing. Everyone has really acted responsibly and I thank all the residents for their continued vigilance, he said. Indoor hospitality has now reopened, so we will have to see where that takes us. But obviously we are really thrilled our levels are really down that low. And of course it is a piece of good news. Now, uh, some more third river crossing. I have to say, having driven over to Galston, they are making progress on that now. It's definitely going to happen. 
but more disruption is expected where the £121 million Third River Crossing is taking shape in Great Yarmouth as some road restrictions are lifted and others are put in place. The temporary one-way system currently in place in Suffolk Road will end from Tuesday, June the 1st, allowing a two-way traffic system to resume. From this date, access onto Suffolk Road from Williams Adams Way will then be temporarily closed until November the 29th, 2022. The closure will be enforced 24 hours a day. Access to Suffolk Road during this period will be available via Boundary Road and the official signed diversion route which allows south along Williams Ad Adams Way, left onto Southtown Road, left onto Boundary Road and then onto Suffolk Road. Those on foot or bicycle will also be diverted via the same route. The changes are required to enable the construction of a new roundabout and the western approach structures for the third river crossing, seen as crucial to a new era of regeneration. The crossing will link to the A47 and Harfreys roundabout via a new roundabout on the western side of the river and connect to South Deans Road on the eastern side. Work started in January and involved the demolition of homes in Southtown Road and Queen Anne's Road as well as some commercial properties. The bridge is due to open in 2023 with planting and landscaping in the final stages helping to improve the area and create attractive walking and cycling routes. For the public, it means no longer having to make the four-mile trip across various pinch points, including Gapton Hall, Fuller's Hill and South Quay, easing existing pressure on roads and diverting at least 15,000 vehicles. Great Yarmouth MP Brandon Lewis has hailed the Third River Crossing as transformational for the whole of the borough, creating jobs and helping locals and visitors to move around more easily, saving time and money. Norfolk County Council and BAM Farrens thank people for their patience while the works are carried out. Now, Labour has suspended a long-serving councillor and who was a town mayor at the centre of a probe. A Labour councillor and town mayor has been suspended from his group while an investigation is carried out. It means Michael Geel, elected to Great Yarmouth's Nelson Ward in 1986 and serving continuously since, will sit as an independent on the Borough Council until the issue is resolved. Mr Geel, who has been Mayor for two years running due to Covid, declined to comment. Trevor Wainwright, leader of the Labour Group, said he could not elaborate on the nature of the allegation but said he expected Mr Jill would return to the Labour benches. He described it as an internal party matter. He is an extremely well-respected councillor and a member of the party for over 40 years, he said. I have known him as a friend and a colleague over many years and I'm very disappointed that at this moment in time he sits as an independent. But I have every confidence that he will be returning to the Labour group. I am sure things will be resolved. Because of his civic commitments as mayor, Mr Jill has not sat on any committees in the last 12 months. However, as an independent, he is entitled to three seats after he hands over the chain of office to Sue Haken.
His suspension, coupled with Labour's failure to hold on to Claydon Ward during the May by-election, tips the balance of power in favour of the Tories, with the Labour group holding 13 seats, the Independents 4 and the Tories 22. Conservative group leader Carl Smith said his group now had a majority of five, putting them in a stronger position with eight seats on the powerful Policy and Resource Committee. Great Yarmouth Borough Council is due to meet on May the 25th at 7 o'clock in person in the Town Hall's Grand Assembly Room. Because there is a limit on numbers, the meeting where the makeup of all the committees will be laid out, revealing Mr Gill's new independent alignment, will also be live-streamed via the Council's YouTube channel. One in five people in the east of England are living in homes with significant mould, condensation or damp, or which they cannot keep warm in winter, according to the new research. And a man from Great Yarmouth has said the state of his rented home with food rotting in cupboards due to the damp is affecting his mental well-being. The charity Shelter questioned people in the region as part of a national survey and combined the results with government data on homelessness. And Shelter says one in three adults in the eastern region, including Norfolk and Suffolk, do not have a safe, stable home while one in five live in homes with significant mould, condensation or damp, or which they cannot keep warm in winter. One is Colin, which is not his real name, who is in his 60s and rents a home with his wife in Great Yarmouth. He has long-term health issues which affect his ability to work and is claiming universal credit. He says his current home is in a poor state of repair and has significant damp problems. He believes his and his wife's mental health are being negatively affected by the damp and despair. He said, I keep ringing the landlord about the damp, but nothing was done. The whole house is damp. It even gets into the cupboards and makes the food bad. It's so bad for your health. My wife's breathing is much worse. I've been put on the council waiting list, but they said it could be eight years wait. Mentally and physically, it's put so much strain on us. All I want is a home that has no issues. Shelter's research, carried out with YouGov, used eight criteria to measure if someone has access to a safe and secure home. The online survey, among 13,000 adults in Great Britain, included 1,200 in the east of England, and the figures were weighted to be representative of all adults. Polly Neat, Chief Executive of Shelter, said decades of neglect have left Britain's housing system on its knees. A safe and secure home is everything, yet 1.5 million people in the east of England don't have one. We are fighting for everyone impacted by the housing emergency and as we emerge from the pandemic. We want the public and politicians to do the same. The founder of a hospice charity has resigned as the chairman, citing ill health and bullying. Jenny Beasley made the announcement via the East Coast Hospice's Facebook page, while proclaiming the much-needed hospice would be built, but without her at the helm. She said she had given the charity her heart and soul, 24-7. The statement said, During the last year I have been poorly and I'm not getting any younger. 
Since my Bell's palsy last August, I have not made the progress I would have hoped for. With the bullying and harassment from certain quarters, I cannot continue. I owe my family more. It is time for me to put them and myself first. I want to thank all the wonderful staff and the support of our trustees. Without you all, I could not have achieved what I have done. The hospice will be built with your support. Mrs Beasley set up the charity in 2008 and returned after a break in 2013. She said, I have walked away. My job is done. I know that the trustees will continue. They are good people. I gave it my life. She said there was no relief in quitting her role, adding, it is a sad part of my life. Her resignation comes as former supporters of the bid to build Margaret Chad House on the Galston-Hopton border in Sidegate Road, raised concerns about the slow progress of fundraising. Published accounts for the year 20 show the charity lost money with its string of shops costing more to run than they made. At the time, Mrs Beasley admitted it had been a bad year topped off by Covid, but said she remained determined to make the hospice dream a reality for the people of Great Yarmouth and Waveney. She said she would also continue to support the appeal and its lottery and remained committed to the ambition of having an independent hospice. Her resignation drew a raft of comments from well-wishers hailing her work over many years. People said she had been amazing but had made the right decision for the sake of her health and her family. Now, for those that go up and down the seafront, you'll be well aware about the pub, the Iron Duke. And the seaside pub has suffered a surge of vandalism during lockdown and is poised for a new lease of life as a major rescue bid gets underway. The Iron Duke pub on Great Yarmouth's Jellicoe Road has stood empty and virtually untouched for close to 15 years. Its shuttered facade, a source of frustration among heritage fans, concerned about its future. In the last year, however, it has suffered at the hands of vandals and urban explorers like never before, with lockdown's empty streets meaning fewer prying eyes and less chance of being caught. Some have even filmed their exploits and uploaded them to Facebook. The result is every window has been smashed from the inside and some of the very few original pieces, like decorative lights, have been broken up, although enough remains to act as a template if they wanted to make more. Elsewhere is shattered glass and peeling paint. In one area, intruders have recently knocked a hole through a brick wall to get in. A mural showing a joyful seaside scene has been crudely added to, and the detritus left behind by drug users greets visitors to the former lounge bar. Upstairs there are smashed basins and holes in the floor, neck curtains hanging limply in depressing shreds. The journey to preserve, restore and reuse is likely to be long and costly, but for the former pub's new owners, Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust, the fighting spirit is strong. Trust Chairman Bernard Williamson said negotiations with its former owners, Bourne Leisure, had been going on for some years until they agreed to sell it to the Trust, a developer of the last resort, for £110,000. He estimated it probably needed at least 600000 to bring it back into use 
and it will be up to consultants to decide what that use might be. Meanwhile, there is a lot of space waiting to be renovated. So far, six skips of rubbish have been filled and work is underway to repair a hole in the flat roof. For Mr Williamson, the potential is huge and thrilling. A stairway to the roof opens up to reveal a perfect space for a terrace with wide, unrivalled views over the dunes and sea, Great Yarmouth's port and the big wheel glinting in the distance. It's just a fantastic example from the period it was constructed, Mr Williamson said. The location and the possibilities for the future are tremendous. It has a tremendous future, whatever its use will be. Because the building is Grade 2 listed, the renovation will stick to the original layout. Overall, it is estimated the project will take two years, with training and community engagement part of the activity plan. Current work is focusing on making the building safe for surveyors and consultants. Options for a new use could include as a pub, a community space, conversion into homes, holiday lets or a combination of several taking in a study of the town trends and footfall. The pub was the work of the architect Arthur W. Ecclestone, who designed a number of pubs both before and after the Second World War, including the Clipper Schooner in Great Yarmouth and the Lynx Hotel in Galston. Despite being incomplete, the Iron Duke opened in 1940 to serve the soldiers manning anti-aircraft guns on North Deans. It was finished in 1948 with its counters made from teak from Admiral Jellicoe's flagship HMS Iron Duke that led the British fleet in the Battle of Jutland. However, little of the original fit-out remains, with the bar now comprising a flimsy replacement, possibly dating from the 1970s. Rain hoppers in the 1930s style are among eye-catching period details that remain, along with two falcons that stood above the former Lakens pub and are in safe storage now. Well, it will be nice to see that eyesore redone, I must say. Thanks, Aileen. Well, as promised, it's the return of Andy, who has two pieces this week, both of a decidedly spooky nature. This story is one of a series that appeared in the Eastern Daily Press and the Yarmouth Mercury, entitled Weird Norfolk. There's some pretty strange stories, some supernatural, but one thing is for sure, they're all pretty weird. This story is entitled The Wise Women of St Stephen's, Norwich. There are secrets hidden in every corner of Norfolk, even in the least expected places. What today forms part of a modern shopping mall was once the place where city people went to have curses removed and good luck restored. Until 1956, when it was renamed Malthouse Road, and was filled with the sweet scent of chocolate, St Stephen's Back Street was where the wise women of the city lived and practised their art, using spells and charms to combat malevolent witchcraft, to find criminals, missing people or stolen property, to tell fortunes or to offer love potions. 
known as either cunning women or men, wizards, wise men or women, or conjurers, those who offered help to others would do so in a variety of ways, including offering witch bottles, which would contain items such as urine, metal nails, nail clippings and hair, which it was believed in unison would cause harm to evil witches. Animal hearts were pierced with pins, dolls were made with rags and pierced to break bewitchments. Rituals were carried out and the needy were cured with the laying on of hands. Wise men and women were visited by the poor who were unable to afford the fees of doctors or apothecaries. They were an affordable way to repel evil in a time when it was believed that the only cure for witchcraft was to deploy similar tactics. Herbs and plants would be used in tinctures and potions, and magic was employed, albeit Christian in nature, and calling on the power of the Holy Trinity to heal and soothe, and it was all happening far later than you might imagine. In response to a previously published article, the Eastern Daily Press received a letter from a Mr G. Edward Deacon of Brundle, which it published on June 2nd, 1943. Although the case you mention seems to have been last in Norfolk to come before the magistrates, it was by no means the last to occur in and around Norwich, he wrote. Between 1890 and 1900, I met with several instances. If a pig, horse, dog or other animal died, the owner would sometimes think it was because a neighbour had bewitched him and caused the death. The bewitched person would then go to one of the wise women of St Stephen's Back Street, Norwich, to have the curse removed. The wise woman would first ask to have her hand crossed with a piece of silver. After explaining his case, the bewitched person was given an amulet to wear round his neck, next to the skin, and was directed to light a candle and put it in a dark cupboard. At chime hours, he must open the cupboard, repeat an incantation, the words of which I've now forgotten, and then stick a pin in the candle. This was to be repeated at chime hours until the candle burned out. The curse was then supposed to be removed. The amulet consisted of the Lord's Prayer written on a scrap of paper and sewn up in a piece of rag. Wise women were also known to offer abortions to those desperate enough to try anything not to have another hungry mouth to feed or bring shame on their family. The abortion would generally be brought on by ingesting a poisonous potion that could also cause potential fatal harm to the mother. The Norwich cunning woman, Sarah Whisker, was transported to Australia for life in 1846 after she gave an irritant, white hellebore, to a pregnant servant who later fell badly ill. 
tried at the Norwich Lent Assizes in 1858 for administering powdered white hellebore for the purpose of procuring abortion, Whisker had a witness stand up in court on her behalf to offer evidence that she was a kind-hearted woman. In the New York Journal of Medicine in April 1846, a report explained that Whisker had been visited by Francis Bailey, a servant, who wished to have her fortune told, and admitted that she was seven months pregnant. The prisoner told her to come in the evening, and she would be given something that would do her good, and not prevent her going on with her work. She accordingly went, and the prisoner gave her a liquid and a powder, with instructions how to take them. They were taken accordingly, and the result was, she became very ill and sick, said the report. She left her place and went to Yarmouth, and in a day or two she became so unwell that she was obliged to have medical advice. Whiskers' pharmacist, Mr Cook, gave evidence that he had frequently sold hellebore to her, while her servant said she had regularly seen young people at her mistress's house and been sent to Mr Cook's to buy drugs, which included dragon's blood, turpentine, and hera picra, a cathartic powder made of aloes and canella bark. Another notable case of a cunning person performing cursing and malevolent witchcraft comes from 19th century Norwich, where a wise woman who went by the pseudonym of Virtue used to demand gifts of her neighbours, threatening with cursing if they refused. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. I told the witch doctor I was in love with you. And then the witch doctor, he told me what to do. He said that... me true. I told the witch doctor you didn't love me nice. And then the witch doctor, he gave me this advice. He said that Ooh, ah, ah, ting, 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 walla, walla, bing, bang Ooh, ee, ooh, ah, ah, ting, ting, walla, walla, bing, bang 
real blast from the past. Following Andy's piece on witches playing doctors, witch doctor, a 1950s long-forgotten novelty performed by Don Lang. Now there's a voice from the past. Okay, the second part of the news is upon us. Now six houses and three flats could be built on the site of a former school in Great Yarmouth. The planning application submitted to the Borough Council would seed Hammond Properties Limited develop land on the site of the former Edward Worlidge School on Litchfield Road in Southtown. The scheme would include six three-storey houses with three bedrooms each, as well as three two-bedroom flats built above a row of ten garages. Plans also involve the demolition of vacant buildings as well as 32 new car parking spaces. A document supporting the application states that the proposal would provide cost-effective new housing and further off-road residential parking and storage facilities within an established residential area. A premises to the north-east corner of the site is occupied by Willows Nursery which remains open. Last year, neighbouring East Coast College sold off two buildings which were part of the original Edward Worlidge School, built in 1906. A decision on the application is expected by August the 3rd. Now, I wonder who remembers the Ocean Rooms nightclub. Boogie nights, first kisses and many fond memories have been made at a town's iconic long-standing seaside venue, which has brought friends together and ignited romances for more than 80 years. For many living in and around Galson, the Ocean Rooms nightclub is a rite of passage. Generations of families have attended formal events, boxing matches, discos and gigs at this uniquely round venue overlooking the sea. It's a destination which has continued to bring the community together since it was opened as the Floral Hall Dance Hall in 1939 and since it was taken over by Gordon Edwards and his son Russell as the Ocean Room in 1975. Kelly Evans is the granddaughter of Gordon who passed away 30 years ago and is now director of the Ocean Room with her cousin Ben Jay after her father retired just over two years ago. The 32-year-old said there is no venue like it across the East Coast. It is so unique. For a start, it's round, and because we are an entertainment complex, we cater for everyone. We have had music events, family nights, Christmas parties, discos, sit-down functions. I could walk past someone today and they remember playing the trumpet with my granddad or when they had their first boxing match in our venue. Mrs Evans' auntie, Anne Perdicou, who has worked at the venue since it was taken over by her family in the 70s, said... When it first opened, we moved our boxing events from the Garibaldi to the Ocean Rooms. We did functions for all the big companies in the town and we did a regular Tuesday family night. We used to pick up families from different campsites. We had coaches full of people and Gordon used to entertain them. We also had a country and western night on a Thursday which eventually turned into grab a granny night in the 1980s. We were open five or six nights a week in the very beginning. 
Mrs Evans said she has many fond memories as a little girl, spending a lot of her time with her dad and her grandfather at the venue. I think my favourite memories are probably the family night, she said. Growing up, my dad would bring me down here and I remember Bubbles the Clown. One year, we had the Spice Girls tribute band and that was absolutely rammed. I was a massive fan. It was just amazing. My dad would give me free reign of organising the teenage discos and then as I got older, he took a step back. Monday's over 14's teen disco, Thursday's over 18's and grab a granny night, which then became the over 21's boogie nights, are among the most popular events remembered by locals in the town. But it also had its fair share of celebrity appearances, including Blur, S Club 7, Boyzone's Keith Duffy, Westlife's Brian McFadden, Mike Tyson, Tyson Fury, Joey Essex and most recently the Rag and Bone Man, who appeared for a surprise performance in 2020. In 2018, the Ocean Room also became an official Bongo's Bingo venue, which Mrs Evans said helped to put it back on the map. Mrs Evans added, I think there are just a lot of memories to be had here. It seems to be the place where everyone met, whether they met their partner for the first time or met up with friends. My husband asked me out when I was working here one night. Loads of my friends and friends of friends. So many people have met here. Even my cousin Ben and his fiance had their first kiss in here. The venue recently launched its new Ibiza-themed Ocean View Terrace and is eagerly awaiting June the 21st when restrictions lift to announce its events, including boogie nights and club fiesta for the over-18s disco, which will hopefully see people back on its dance floor. Now a football story. Great Yarmouth Town tasted cup success over the weekend after a depleted team went through on penalties. The bloaters met Sheringham FC on Saturday in the second round of the Norfolk Senior Cup. Sheringham were quick out of the traps with busy Dan Crosby firing a shot over the bar. Kyle Baker responded for Tan with an enthusiastic shot just over the bar. Young goalkeeper Fen Nichols was called into action as he palmed away a dangerous cross into the bloater's penalty area. Connor Delaney then had a good chance, but his efforts were wide of the target. In the 20th minute, a near-post corner by Declan McAvoy was headed goalward and palmed away by the Shannock's Andrew Jackson, only for Baker to rely on his cat-like reflexes and head the ball in for the opening goal for the home season. Sheringham soon equalised in the second half with Ben Boyce scoring from close range. Shortly after the end of the game, McAvoy had the ball in the net, but it was chalked off for being offside. Nichols' save and a wild effort over the bar by the visitors ensured the home side were in the hat for the next round as they won the penalty shootout. Now, hospital news. A quarter of all COVID deaths occurred after patients were infected while in a Norfolk hospital, new figures have revealed. The figures found the James Paget Hospital in Galston was 10th highest for the percentage of all COVID deaths where patients were infected in hospital. 
NHS data released to The Guardian under the Freedom of Information Act showed some 32,300 people had probably or definitely contracted COVID while in hospital since March 2020. Of those, 8,700 people who died were all in hospital for other medical treatment, such as to have an operation for care after a fall or the flare-up of a serious illness. No Norfolk hospital ranked in the highest number of deaths from COVID-19 caught in the hospital. The death numbers can be influenced by factors including the size of a hospital, the number of single rooms, its intensive care unit's capacity, the level of infection among the makeup of the local population and infected control procedures. A spokesperson for the hospital said the Office for National Statistics has made clear that when infections in the community are high, NHS staff and patients are more likely to be affected. Managing COVID and in particular asymptomatic cases can be challenging. So throughout the pandemic, the Trust has had robust infection prevention measures in place, including zoning the hospital, regularly testing patients and staff and increased cleaning in line with national guidance. The data includes people who died in hospital and after discharge and did not distinguish between those who died from COVID with COVID or from another condition that could have been exacerbated by the virus, for example a heart attack. The data was from 81 out of England's 126 hospital trusts. The co-founder of COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice which is calling for a government inquiry, said it should be brought to the summer and an interim report on preventing transmissions within hospitals should come in the autumn. He said the mortality rate for patients and staff who were infected in hospitals is horrifying and must be stopped from happening again ahead of a potential third wave. On issues such as segregating patients on wards, PPE for frontline workers and testing patients who are discharged, there are critical questions around about how prepared hospitals were and the resources they were provided. Thoughts about cruising are a long way off. However, a luxury cruise ship is looking to bring hundreds of passengers back to Great Yarmouth as part of a series of voyages taking in the British Isles. With the seaborne fleet grounded by the virus pandemic, the US-based company is looking to restart cruises in 2022. According to its website, the port of Great Yarmouth features as a destination on three voyages lasting from two to four weeks. The itinerary, variously advertised as jewels of the National Trust and British Isles and European Gems, sees the seaborne ovation arriving in Great Yarmouth on September the 30th, 2022, from 7am to 8pm. The Seabourne Quest was the first of the company's ships to arrive in Yarmouth in June 2018, followed by the slightly larger Ovation in September. Passengers were treated to a civic reception on the quayside and were said to sail away with happy memories. A ship from the fleet last visited in June 2019. The coronavirus pandemic brought the cruise industry to a halt. The sight of an empty Cunard ship off Lowestoft last year providing an unusual spectacle for people on the shore. 
Now, a drink driver. A driver was found to be more than three times the drink drive limit after being stopped in a Norfolk town on Wednesday night. Acle Road and policing teams stopped the van in Great Yarmouth after seeing what they described as questionable driving. The driver provided a roadside test of 115 milligrams per 100 millilitres of breath. The legal limit is 35. The police have said the driver was taken into custody. Now, it's not the time of year for fireworks unless you're playing truant, and a car was damaged when fireworks were thrown near Great Yarmouth Police Station. Norfolk Police are investigating after the devices were let off near the building on Howard Street North at approximately 12.20am on Sunday, May the 23rd. A car which was parked in the area at the time was damaged. Alan Hunt, who lives in the neighbourhood, said he saw at least four or five fireworks shooting at the police station from Harry's Close and the public toilets next to the job centre. He added, it went on for about five minutes. I was just shocked someone decided to do something like that when people have kids and pets. It's unfair, he added. Police have said inquiries are ongoing. More news in just a while, but not before Andy has told us about a really spooky shop. And here's another story in the Weird Norfolk series of stories from way back when. Well, some of this one in particular is reasonably modern. It concerns the haunted clothes shop on London Street in Norwich. The strangest stories are hidden in plain sight behind buildings which look as unremarkable as any other, but which harbour secrets which are passed down through the years by wide-eyed witnesses who have spotted something unusual about their workplace. At 35 London Street, once the Norwich base for Edinburgh Woollen Mill, something strange has been seen on the first floor. On Saturday, December 13, 1997, the Norwich Evening News reported a possible haunting at the building, which was then Farnworth's, after speaking to manager Kerry Hughes, who told a reporter about some of the spooky goings-on. Once every couple of weeks, I hear men's voices coming from the corridor when I'm sitting in my office on the floor below, she said. At first I thought it was the offices next door, but they were empty at that time in the morning. For the first couple of months after we opened, we would walk in and as soon as we entered the corridor it would be icy cold and then warm up a bit further along. Yet there were no drafts. I'm the last person here at night and the first person in the morning. I check all the rooms every night to make sure all the lights are off before I go. But this morning there was a pile of boxes stacked in the middle of the corridor. Yet they definitely weren't there the night before. I noticed some strange marks on the corridor floor one morning. It was like a series of wet drag marks which went the whole length of the corridor. 
It looked like someone had put something down, dragged it a bit, and then done the same all along the corridor. But there was no damp in the room. It was really spooky. Kerry had a chance conversation with a customer and discovered that the man had worked in the building for almost 30 years until the 1980s. We talked a bit about the history and after a while I asked if anything strange had happened here, she said. The man's reply left her stunned. Ah, so you've met him, have you? He went on to say, There's a long corridor right at the top of the building where we used to have our tea room. That's where it happens. Since this time, there have been various reports of unaccountable occurrences at the London Street Building. At the end of last year, a customer spoke about having seen something strange on the upstairs floor close to the stockroom. The use of the building is known back to 1836, when Hannah Powell was listed as having a hosiers and haberdashers there. From 1883 onwards, the building has had a link to clothing, and until 1966 it belonged to the same family, the Livcocks, William Thomas Livcock and Sons. It's been a tailor's and an outfitter's, it's had a gentleman's hairdressing salon and stands on a street which was originally named Hosiergate, meaning Street of Stocking Makers, and it has also been named after the Cocky, the stream that once ran through it. It was in the 1800s that it finally became known as London Street. But the mystery of the ghost of number 35 persists. Perhaps you've seen it. Yeah. 
Nardine Taylor with There's a Ghost in My House. Couldn't find anything featuring shop ghosts. Well, we will have more from Andy in the weeks to come, during which we're hoping to start getting grapevine shifted back to what might pass for normal. Listen to this space as during the next few weeks we may have an announcement about the famous little yellow envelopes, fingers crossed. We must, however, bring you the last issue of this week's news, and so it's back to Aileen. Now, a village fun day, which will take place at a new location after concerns were raised about thousands of people potentially attending the event. Belton Fun Day and Classic Cars Show normally draws a crowd to the sports field on New Road on the second weekend in August. This year, however... Belton with Browston Parish Council, which leases the site, voted against hosting the annual jamboree. According to the minutes of a meeting held last month, the Parish Council decided the risks would outweigh the benefits, with members voicing concerns about social distancing. While Great Yarmouth Borough Council has cancelled large events this summer, a spokesman confirmed it is possible for some gatherings to take place, providing appropriate risk assessments and event management plans are in place. Karen Wellsby, who organises Belton Fun Day with her husband Phil, said they had only wanted to plan the event and that it would follow all government restrictions in place at the time. After the Parish Council's decision, villagers set up a petition which was signed by 200 people and there was a bit of a social media frenzy, she said. Then Julie from the car boot sale approached and said she would be happy to hold it there, she added. The event is now being planned for August the 7th at Julie's car boot field on Market Road in Borough Castle. Should the event go ahead, it would be its sixth instalment, the most recent event in 2019, attracting up to 4,000 people. Last year it was cancelled. Ms Wellsby said the first time we held it we thought a couple of hundred people would turn up but 1,500 people turned up. All is going according to plan. Entertainment at this year's gathering will include a circus, dinosaurs, fire breathing and a Punch and Judy show as well as food and craft stalls. There will also be 150 to 200 classic cars and a Viking battle reenactment. The Borough Council has said it is encouraging anyone planning events to get in touch to discuss their aspirations from the perspective of public safety. Our website also has guidance from the Event Safety Advisory Group, a multi-agency group providing a single point of contact for event organisers, the Council has said. A woman ignored danger to run to help a badly injured four-year-old boy after a horror pile-up caused by a drug driver. Healthcare worker Amelia Raby came across the devastating scene after Jacob Trower's Seat car ploughed headlong into another vehicle on the A47 Acle Strait. Four people, including two children, were seriously injured in the crash, which happened after Troa, who is 19, had taken drugs following a breakup with his girlfriend. Mrs Raby, who is in a car not far from the crash, has been honoured by Norfolk's High Sheriff Michael Gurney. She was presented with a certificate of reward at a ceremony in Norwich. 
It said she demonstrated both resourcefulness and compassion in the very distressing situation she came upon. Norwich Crown Court had previously heard how the driver of the car that was hit woke up in the vehicle to hear her four-year-old son screaming. She suffered a number of injuries, including three fractured ribs, internal injuries, a fractured right shoulder and spent eight days in hospital. Her son was bleeding from his mouth and suffered a head injury, which required further surgery. Mrs Raby, who lives with her husband John in East Harling, had been driving with her daughter, Serafina, to meet family for lunch on March the 9th when the crash happened in front of them. The 44-year-old, who works for the Norfolk Medicine Support Service, said a lorry braked in front of them all of a sudden and she told her daughter there must have been an accident. She said, I've got to get out and help, adding her gut feeling was just so strong. Mrs Raby initially spoke to Troa before turning her attention to the two women and two children in the car that was hit. The young boy had a horrific hole in his head and she stayed to support and look after him. Mrs Raby said it was horrendous. It was just dreadful. He was crying. I could see the blood coming from his head. I'm a healthcare professional, but I'm not a paramedic. I don't work in A&E. But like I say, my gut feeling was just to go and help. I'm so glad I went to the car. She kept speaking to him to keep him talking. I was able to be there and look after him in the best way I could, with me being a mother. Mrs Raby told the boys she was a mum and they talked about the big helicopter coming to help before the air ambulance arrived. She has stayed in touch with the boys' family following the crash and they now meet up from time to time. Mrs Raby said the enormity of what happened did not hit her until after she had got home and spoken to her husband. She said, the next day I woke up thinking, I can go to work but there's no way I could. After contacting her GP, Mrs Raby was later seen and put on medication after being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety. Mrs Raby, who had to take time off work following the crash, is still taking medication to help her with the trauma of what she witnessed, but is still glad she stopped to help and delighted she has been recognised for it. She said it was so nice to have been recognised for what I had done, I was just glad I was able to help. Following the award, Mr Gurney said Mrs Raby had bravely stepped forward and was still in touch with those she helped. He said, I was delighted to be able to present Amelia Raby with the court award for her courage and fortitude in helping to save four people's lives and ensure the driver who caused the accident pleaded guilty. As previously reported, Trower of Sydenham Close Acle was jailed for two years in February this year after previously admitting four counts of causing serious injury by dangerous driving. Now everyone's expecting a busy summer in Great Yarmouth and the lifeguards and coastguards across Norfolk and Waveney are preparing for the busiest summer ever as coronavirus restrictions are eased and people choose to staycation. The RNLI and HM Coast Guard are launching a joint beach safety campaign on the 27th of May after a survey revealed that around 30 million people plan to visit the UK coast over the next four months. Ahead of the bank holiday weekend and half-term holidays, 
The campaign is urging everyone to choose lifeguarded beaches when they visit the seaside. The warning comes after summer last year saw a spike in call-outs for lifeboat teams and coastguards when a combination of lifted lockdown restrictions and baking weather brought people flocking to the coast. Nick Ayres, Regional Water Safety Lead for the East and North of England, said, We are preparing for the busiest summer ever, with lockdown restrictions easing and with international holidays put on hold. People are expected to stay in the UK. Our main advice is to visit a lifeguarded beach and swim between the red and yellow flags. Mr Ayers, who spent eight years as a lifeguard at Galston Beach and is currently based in Lowestoft, singled out inflatables as being notoriously dangerous. We're taking a strict message to people telling them not to use inflatables. Lifeguards have been watching over the beaches at Galston and Hemsby since May the 1st. They will return to Yarmouth Seafront on the 3rd of July. In a survey commissioned by the RNLI, 75% of those questioned, aged 16 to 64, expect to visit a UK beach or the coast between April and September, with around half of that number likely to do so three or more times. A significantly higher proportion of the public also said they planned to visit the coast more than usual this year. Lifeguards, lifeboat crews and the Coast Guard faced a surge of call-outs last summer to people struggling in the water or stranded on sandbanks and islands after the tide had returned. Now, if you want a new job, there is McDonald's. A new McDonald's drive through restaurant is opening next month, creating up to 80 new jobs. The bid for a third Great Yarmouth outlet won planning permission in September last year. It is taking shape in the Asda car park on Akel New Road and means a loss of 119 parking spaces. The restaurant says it is opening in late June and is looking to hire around 75 staff in three key areas as crew members, customer care assistants and caretakers. Wages range from £7.50 to £9 an hour depending on the age and the role. In the planning papers, McDonald's said it was seeking to increase its representation in key locations. The restaurant will have an outdoor patio and play area and is likely to be open 24 hours a day. Yarmouth already has a McDonald's restaurant in the town centre and at the Gapton Hall Retail Park. As you know, there are some events that have been cancelled this year, as last year, and the Out There Festival, which was cancelled last year due to COVID restrictions, is actually going to attempt to come back this year on September the 17th. If Out There goes ahead, it will be the only one out of the big three events, which includes Wheels and the Maritime Festival, to return this year. Emily Phillips, Communications and Development Manager for Out There Arts, said the Out There Festival is set to be as exceptional as ever. Visitors will experience the same quality atmosphere, but with tweaks in operations, such as a new booking system and social distancing. So, as long as it remains safe to do so, we are enthusiastic to bring the festival back to the town. No matter where you come from, you can come to the top in Great Yarmouth. An outgoing mayor 
has delivered an inspirational and emotional speech about always aiming high, no matter where you come from. Speaking at Great Yarmouth Borough Council's first in-person meeting since February last year, an emotional Michael Jeel stressed that everyone who had a difficult start in life could still achieve great things in his hometown. Having held the civic role for a rare three terms, he recounted how he was born in 53 just a stone's throw from the town hall where he stood wearing his chain of office. His mother was from North Shields and his father from Coronation Terrace. After the famous floods, the family retreated to the north where Mr Jeel and his sister, then aged five and six, were taken into care and did not see their parents again for many years. It has been hard, he said. I want people to understand that no matter where you come from, you can come to the top in Yarmouth. He recounted how he had returned to Yarmouth 1971, working as a nursing assistant at the St Nicholas Hospital, before going on to spend 30 years as a firefighter. Retirement, however, meant more work with the charity First Move Furnish Aid, and he held the council for its support. He entered local politics in 1986, having served the Nelson Ward continuously since then. He added, If you can come from where I came from to be the mayor of Great Yarmouth three times, anything is possible, so do not give up hope. After thanking council leader Carl Smith for giving him a historic third term as mayor, he said he hoped his successor, Sue Haken, would have the best term of office any councillor has ever had. During the meeting held in the town hall's assembly room, fellow Nelson Ward councillor Kerry Robinson Payne hailed Mr Jeel's contribution. She praised his outstanding conduct and said that what he had achieved in his life was a personal triumph. At the meeting, it was announced Carl Smith would continue in his role as council leader, with Graham Plant as deputy leader. The deputy mayor was announced as Adrian Thompson. This is the news for the week ending the 28th of May, and it's quite nice to have some news items that are not, in fact, COVID-related. Well, I'm afraid that's all the news I've got for this week. Hope you have a nice bank holiday weekend. Enjoy some of the good weather. This is Aileen, um, having given you the news this week. Thinking of you all, take care and speak to you next time. Bye for now. Well, that's it from this edition of Grapevine. This recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Disney, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, 
we hope that you stay safe and well and enjoy spring, which apparently is happening in the next few days. From everybody here, it's bye for now. Bye.